What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead this hour. Apple has crossed the $2 trillion mark, the first company to ever achieve it. This happening today with the Nasdaq and S&P hitting all-time highs, and it's no coincidence. Apple alone is now worth 14% of the Nasdaq 100. 14%. Is the market too top-heavy? We'll ask. Plus, towering timber as lumber prices soar to new highs. We'll tell you the stocks that are poised to benefit. These are some names that might not be on your radar. And the Netflix shuffle button, more drama on college campuses. And welcome back to the Fanny Pack. It's all in rapid fire, but we begin with these markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. What's old is new again. I think I have a Fanny Pack somewhere in my basement right now. But anyway, the markets right now are about as green as your shirt, Kelly, because you can see here the Dow Industrials, yeah, they're modest gains. 47 points here for the Dow. Still up two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 up two-tenths of 1% in the NASDAQ as well. For the S&P and the NASDAQ, more rarefied air, if you will, because those two notch record intraday highs yet again in today's trade. So watch the overall market there. Also watch what's happening with consumer discretionary stocks. The sector overall, a key focus this week with a slew of big earnings reports. The big one today, of course, is target shares. Those are surging. You're going to talk later on a, a, bit, a bit more about that. But this is important because the sector sits at a record high thanks to some of those earnings reports this week. One to watch. And then we mentioned Apple. The $2 trillion mark finally hit. We can kind of say, hey, we've hit that mark now. Well, what does it mean for valuations? Kelly, you mentioned the 14% weighting in some ETFs that track the NASDAQ 100. What about the S&P 500, where it's almost 7% weighting if you own the spiders for the S&P, ticker SPY? Also get this from a valuation perspective, Kelly, just to put things in perspective. Apple now trades at around 34 times next year's expected earnings. The overall S&P 500 trades at 23 times next year's expected earnings. So that valuation premium for Apple certainly growing right now into that $2 trillion valuation. We'll see if it can stay that way. Back over and that you. might be the number I'm most obsessed with out of all of them. Dom, thanks, and we'll see you shortly. Now, that $2 trillion market cap makes Apple bigger than the GDPs today of most countries, bigger than Italy, bigger than Brazil, bigger than Canada and Russia. For more on this milestone, let's bring in Josh Lipton. And Josh, to me, the valuation is a really important part of this story when people say, why is Apple suddenly worth $2 trillion? Well, people are giving it a higher price for its earnings. That's right. So, you know, it's really largely symbolic, uh, this milestone, but it is important, Kelly. So today, as you mentioned, Apple did hit that market cap of $2 trillion dollars. So the first publicly traded U.S. company to reach that milestone, doubling in valuation in just over two years. Apple first reached $1 trillion in August 2018, $500 billion in 2012. Remember, Tim Cook was named CEO back in August 2011. The stock has surged higher this year, now up about 60%. In the past 12 months, it has soared more than 120%. So what explains that run? Well, of course, there was that earnings report in late July that 
blew past expectations, but analysts will mention other broader trends too. One, they'll say that cash is king in uncertain times, and Apple, as we know, has a lot of it with a net cash position of $81 billion. Two, Apple does benefit from the work-from-home trend as well, or at least certain products do, like the Mac and iPad. And finally, many investors clearly betting here that Apple is well-positioned to capitalize on important tech trends in the quarters and years ahead, like 5G, wearables, and digital health. Kelly, back to you. Josh, in the recent quarter, perhaps the thing that really caught investors' attention as well was the growth of its services business to maybe, I think, just shy of 40 percent of revenue. So you can see it being on track to being more than half of the company. And is it worth more? You know, is that why the multiple deserves to expand? And one final piece of that that is going to be so important, correct me if I'm wrong, is what happens with this fight over the App Store. I mean, it, it services revenue and the growth trajectory there. A lot of that is comprised of the App Store, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so that's exactly right, Kelly. So obviously investors have been very enthusiastic about that faster growing and higher margin services segment. And of course, a big driver of that segment is the App Store. But we know now that the App Store is facing these new challenges. So we know there's more regulatory scrutiny. We know that um, there is now some real headline making lawsuits being brought by Epic Games, of course, the maker of Fortnite. Investors don't appear worried at this point about that. But of course, the outcome there is still very much uncertain, Kelly. Yeah, it's amazing to me. The shares have just powered past any concern on that front. Josh, thank you very much. Josh Lipton on a very big day for Apple. And as Dom mentioned, that company has now become a huge part of the S&P 500, of the NASDAQ composite, and especially the NASDAQ 100. It's 14 percent. Is this situation sustainable or have we become too top heavy? To answer that, we turn to Barry Bannister, head of institutional equity strategy at Cefal, and Ernesto Ramos, head of equities at BMO Global Asset Management. It's good to have you both. And Barry, IBM was, I think, about a similar weighting in the S&P 500 for most of the 80s. So the situation can sustain for a, for a while. But would you want to be the buyer of Apple here? Yeah, if you look back at the 1972 list of what was called the Nifty 50, you had stocks like Xerox and Burroughs Computer and Digital Equipment. All of them are either diminished or gone now. Um, you know, the problem with technology is it has a short life cycle, and so putting a high multiple in a short life cycle business just doesn't add up. Uh, that's one of the big drawbacks of this current bull market. It's uh, bubbly on the price-to-earnings ratio for obvious reasons of repressed interest rates. And uh, it's forcing people to speculate on companies that really don't have that long of a life cycle. Let me ask you, though, about this changing business model, because I totally take your point about how quickly technology changes. But at the same time, if Apple's trying to basically be kind of like taking a portion of everything that we spend on its phones, the subscription model, they're looking to roll out an even bigger subscription model. And as you know better than anybody, all of the companies look at Adobe, look at Microsoft, you know, all of the names that are at these unheard of valuations are doing so because people see no reason why they shouldn't just continue to take a share of GDP. Oh, it's no question. Uh, you know, it's a great story now. It reminds me of a book I read about 30 years ago called Barbarians to Bureaucrats, Historical <laughs> Lessons in Corporate Life Cycles. And what the book talked about was you go from visionary founders to professional management and strong growth, and then eventually a corporate aristocracy aristocracy that decays from within and collapses on itself. Uh, we saw some of that with IBM through the mainframe business as the PCs came about, and you'll see it with Apple eventually. That's one of the reasons you just don't want to put a high multiple on technology stocks. They go through these life cycles a little bit faster than 
you know, an auto company or something that's going to be around for a while. I've got the book up on Amazon now. Lawrence Miller. So maybe it'll get a little bit of a boost as a result of this conversation. Ernesto, let me turn to you, bring you in and talk a little bit about what your advice to investors would be here. So, I mean, the trick is if you think there's a problem with the valuations of tech companies right now, then you're basically saying to people, you've got to take it out of an index fund. And that's a difficult thing to do. Well, and, and we, we're not investing in index funds. We're, we're managely, actively managing our portfolios. And we're really looking for companies that, given their fundamentals, we think are underpriced relative to those fundamentals. And, and uh, companies, for example, such as Target, which reported today great numbers. We, we own it in the portfolio. And, and given the strength of the fundamentals, we don't think Target is, is overpriced at its current multiple. And that, that's the trick at, when you find the market at these lofty levels is to focus on identifying uh, pockets of opportunity and, and investing in those companies. At the same time, given the, the, the valuation risk overall of the market, we think there's a potential for, for a downside move here. And you want to make sure you protect against those downside moves with, with lower risk stocks, such as uh, Target, for example, Costco. Yeah. Uh, Sprouts farmer markets, other defensive type stocks that, despite of that, still have uh, participation in the upside of the market with downside protection. And we're showing a number of those names on the screen right now. So that's your strategy. Barry, what's yours? Are you bearish on the overall market? Yeah, I think it's about 10% overvalued. Uh, And between now and October, I think it could pull back on a correction. Uh, We've got some structural damage to the economy. Personal services businesses are probably not coming back anytime soon. A lot of these unemployed that think that they're coming back from furlough are not going to come back. Unemployment will settle in in the high, high single digits, which is going to be very high uh, compared to history. Uh, It'll affect consumer sentiment. Banks are going to have problems on their portfolios of commercial real estate. They're adequately reserved and they have enough liquidity for it, but it's going to affect lending activity and the baby goes out with the bathwater whenever you have that kind of a credit crunch. You're going to see a blowout by 2021 in corporate spreads and all that will become evident. And you think now, we're only 10% mean stocks- over, I mean, you're describing uh, something sounds like we have 30, 40% <laughs> downside. Uh, maybe later. Uh, but right now it just looks like it's a little ahead of itself. Most of this stuff comes about in mid-2021. And so uh, the market's not that forward looking. Uh, right. In the short term, it could pull back a little bit. Appreciate it. Guys, thank you both for your perspective today, especially historically speaking, on an important day for Apple. Barry Bannister and Ernesto Ramos on these markets. We have a news alert out of the bond market right now. The 20-year bonds, relatively a newcomer, were up for auction again. Rick Santelli with the results. Rick? Yes, it's only the fourth auction, so I'm basing the grading on a three auction average instead of a 10, but 25 billion 20-year bonds fled the Treasury in new hands of investors at a yield of 1.185, so 118 and a half. Uh, That is much higher yield than the when issued market, which is really trading around 117, 117 and a half, so it didn't price exactly right, and the bid to cover was the lowest out of the current four auctions now 2.26. Uh, the only thing that was really average here was the indirects at 62.6. 11.2 on directs, the lowest of the four auctions. And dealers took 26.2, which is the highest amount they've taken in only these four auctions. So I gave it a D plus, a D plus. Could have been better. And what's really interesting, and I know it's an apples to oranges, Kelly, but about eight hours ago, the Germans auction, uh, 1.25 billion euros, one and a half billion dollars worth of their 30-year bonds at a yield of minus 0.05, and they had the highest bid to cover 
at 2.9 they ever had in a 30-year boomed auction. Now, I only bring that up because much of the scuttlebutt is, is that what makes the dollar weak is what's affecting the sentiment and maybe pushing more fixed-income sovereign investors into other countries like the Eurozone and Germany. All right, Rick, thank you, sir. Tying it all together, as always, Rick Santelli. Let's turn to the housing market now, and it has been on a strong rebound this year. As a result, lumber prices are soaring to record highs. They are up 118% in just three months. How can you play the sector without owning a forest? Well, Paul Quinn of RBC Capital Markets is here with some names in the stock market that you can own. In fact, he just raises price targets on several of the lumber companies. Paul, it's good to have you. And it's interesting because sometimes high commodity prices hurt the companies uh, trafficking in them, kind of depending on where they sit. So explain what's going on with the surge in lumber prices and who stands most to benefit. Yeah, it's, it's not just lumber. It's it's lumber. It, you know, all building material prices seem to be up, but lumber is getting a lot of attention. Um, OSB has also hit record prices. Same with plywood. Uh, what's causing is really three factors. So we've had extremely strong repair and remodel uh, demand right now, and that's driven by COVID and everybody staying home, everybody building a deck or an addition. Um, that's You can sort of see those uh, that that strength in, in the results that uh, Home Depot had out yesterday that was up 25% in Q2 yeah. year over year. Lowe's came out this morning, they were up 35%. So repair and remodel is doing extremely well. Housing, new home construction is recovering. And lastly, we've had a number of capacity shuts, mostly in Canada on the lumber side, which started last year. And so you came into the year with low lumber inventories, and then you had this really robust demand, and that's where we're at, and that's why we've got the record lumber prices. Yeah, and that issue with the Canadian supply chain is getting a lot of interest. People thought it was uh, because the borders were shut down over trade. They thought it was because Canada needed all the lumber in its country. So what, whatever the vagaries are of what's happening there, tell us the names that you think investors can bet on, even after the run-up that we've already seen. Yeah, sure. And and what's interesting about this rally in the commodity price is, is most of my stocks are linked to that commodity price, and they generally go lockstep. Uh, the stocks are lagging the commodity in this case. So I think there's still, you know, quite a bit of runway in the stocks. In the U.S. market, you know, the way to play it first and foremost would be Louisiana Pacific. You know, we just raised our target to $42 on that. We have an outperform rating. Uh, I'd also play it through Warehouser or Potlatch. Uh, Warehouser and Potlatch are timber REITs. They both have lumber operations, but their main business is logs. So generally what you see is when lumber prices move up, so does log prices, and they get the benefit on both sides. So maybe investors in the stocks are saying, hey, we don't know if these prices will be sustained. You know, I can imagine some shorts piling in to say we're going to take advantage of this doubling because it can't persist. Why do you think that it might? Well, there's just not enough inventory out there. I think the high prices are definitely going to slow down construction um, because, you know, that marginal home that you're going to build is now uneconomic at, at you know, today's lumber and panel prices. Um, but right now, there's not enough lumber in, in the inventory channels. And, you know, if you talk to the bulls out there on the trading side, and I talk to trader, lumber traders, you know, all week long, um, they would say that, uh, you know, because inventories are so scant in the, in the distribution channel that they're, that people are not going to be able to build inventories uh, by the end of the year. And then you'll go into the 2021 building season and uh, it, it'll be even, you know, it'll stay high as well. Now, I do expect prices to come down from these levels, but they're going to stay high 
uh, everybody's order files right at, you know, almost to the end of September at this point. So, uh, you know, Q3 is in the bag. You're just looking at Q4. Yeah, we need some knotted pine, uh, if, if you know anyone. It's true that the shortage is everywhere and everyone's trying to figure out what to do about it. Paul, it's good to have you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Paul Quinn on some investment ideas in the lumber space. Coming up, there's a lot at stake for corporate America in this election, especially for which mega deals will get done over the next four years. We'll have more on that next. Plus, Walmart credited stimulus checks for its huge earnings beat, but not Target, whose shares are surging 12% right now. We'll tell you what they think drove their massive quarter and if it can last. And the shift to online learning could lead to defaults in a key area of the bond market. We will break that down ahead. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. Dealmakers have, of course, always paid attention to presidential elections, but the stakes were especially high this year. Axios says, unlike earlier presidents, neither Biden nor Trump will be a passive bystander in which deals get done. If you need any proof, just look at the current battle over TikTok. In fact, President Trump weighing in on the action again last night. Well, I think Oracle's a great company, and I think its owner is a tremendous guy, tremendous person. Uh, I think that Oracle would be certainly somebody that could handle it. Yeah. We gave them until September 15th. For more, I'm joined by Dan Primack. He is the business editor at Axios. It's great to have you, Dan. We know what the Trump uh, version of this might look like, especially with this TikTok deal. But what if Biden were elected? I think uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, you know, the biggest obvious one is on the tech side when it comes to antitrust policy, right? You know, you've already got these investigations into Google and Apple and Amazon and Facebook, the hearings last month. I think, uh, you know, a Biden administration, although they have not been terribly explicit, it would seem to be probably harder for some of those companies to make acquisitions. And you could see that kind of go through the entire ecosystem. For example, uh, Amy Klobuchar, who theoretically could be part of this administration, she objected to Uber going and buying Postmates. So I, I think you could see a lot of action on the antitrust side. Yeah, and I guess antitrust is one thing, and it's often somewhat after the fact, although in Uber's case, it sounds like people were pretty involved during the negotiations and making clear what was and wasn't acceptable. Um, so all of this would be much stepped up from what we've experienced over the last kind of 10 or 15 years, where dealmaking was largely left alone or dealt with afterwards, right? Correct. Yeah. And I'd say for the last 10 or 15 years, probably pre-Trump, right? Because, because right. President Trump's been fairly involved in it. Yeah. You know, look, you know, dealmakers have always known that, you know, a new president or a new control of Congress is going to impact tax policy or immigration policy or trade policy. And that's always been par for the course. But this is much more, for lack of a better term, activist, and particularly in the Trump administration. And what we've seen, TikTok is the most obvious example of it, and you know, including that kind of extortion fee that he wants uh, from anyone who buys TikTok. But honestly, been very involved in other deals as well, stepped up the fiat activity. Clearly, you know, in addition to the big tech stuff, really anything relating to China and acquisitions. 
Right. So let's talk about TikTok. What, how does this play out? They don't have a ton of time left. Uh, is it down to Microsoft and Oracle? I think it's down to Microsoft. I, I have a very hard time seeing Oracle as anything but kind of leverage that's being used uh, by President Trump to, to help maybe get a better deal out of Microsoft or to maybe kind of push Microsoft along a little bit. It, you know, I could be wrong. Oracle could certainly do it. We, you know, everybody knows it doesn't seem to make a lot of strategic sense, at least on the surface. And then there's also the time factor. Uh, you know, Microsoft spent, you know, the, the first several weeks of this process, of the initial process, really just dealing with the politics of the White House before it even began negotiating with ByteDance, which is the company that owns TikTok. There isn't that much time. The only counter would be that Oracle, because of Larry Ellison, because of Stafford Katz, does have very tight relationships with the White House. So maybe it could get through that faster than Microsoft could. This is a, th a whole throwback era, isn't it? I mean, when was the previous era that we saw a president so involved with corporate America like this? I mean, not, not in my lifetime, at least not covering deals, and I've been doing this for 20 years. Not, nothing close to this. Now, look, there have been individual transactions. But look, the, the TikTok thing is, is truly unique. Uh, I don't think we've ever quite seen something like this ever. And that's not to say that there haven't been deals that a White House through CFIUS or other actions, antitrust action with their DOJ, has tried to block or tried to renegotiate or tried to get divestitures, you know, tied to. But this is a whole different sort of animal. Uh, and, and particularly, you know, the shot block that Trump created, which is really out of thin air. There's no particular reason for 45 days as opposed to 60 or 90. And yet there seems to be not a ton of pushback by the public, would you say? And I wonder what that opens the door to in the future. Well, there's not a lot of pushback because TikTok's still on everybody's phones and it's working. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, you know, we're day 45 to come and Oracle or Microsoft didn't have a deal in place with ByteDance, which is what they need to get. I, I, and, and Trump actually followed through with his threat. I, I could see some pushback. It's unclear whether he would follow through with that threat or not. It's uh, it would be a pretty uh, bold move to take off a social media app loved by, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of Americans just a few weeks before an election. Right. And it being an election tool, no less. Uh, Dan, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Dan Primack Thank with you. Axios. Still ahead, the trade war is having some unintended consequences for schools as they shift to online learning. We'll tell you who could be impacted the most. Plus, this stock is the fourth best performer in the S&P since its March lows. It's up 140 percent, and it's the latest addition to our Crowded Kings segment. We will reveal the name ahead. We're back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on your markets right now, which have been generating so many headlines over the past couple of days. The S&P yesterday closed at a record all-time high. We were already above the record intraday highs, so at this point, anything above that is gravy. The Nasdaq, and it, by the way, is up six points for the broad index. The Nasdaq today is up 31 points or a quarter percent. And again, Apple's strong performance crossing the $2 trillion mark for the first time is now a major part of both averages, about 6 to 7 percent. The Dow, for its part, up 58 points. Uh, the highs, we were up about 150. So we've come off of that somewhat. Here are the sectors relatively evenly split. Technology, communication services in the leadership today, but also the industrials are up there. So that's noteworthy. The financials are positive as well. Your laggards include a lot of the rate-sensitive areas, uh, utilities, energy, consumer staples, and real estate, all lower real estate down 1.4%. Some of the individual movers today include Biomarin, which is sharply lower after a surprise rejection from the FDA that will delay its gene therapy treatment for hemophilia until at least 2022. Biomarin is down 36% today. Meanwhile, shares of Goodyear Tire took a sharp downturn after the president called for a boycott of the company on Twitter. His tweet was prompted by what he said was a ban on MAGA hats, Make America Great Again hats, by Goodyear. The company has released a statement saying its workplace policy prohibits any political campaigning attire. Uh, the shares are still down about 4%. They're under $10 a share. And finally, Southwest is higher after that airline disclosed a smaller-than-anticipated cash burn rate in July and now estimates it'll burn $3 million less a day than thought for the third quarter. The carrier credits modest improvements in revenue trends, and we know people have been flying a little more lately. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The U.S. is formally suspending or terminating three bilateral agreements with Hong Kong covering extraditions and tax exemptions. That is in response to China's imposition of a sweeping national security law that the State Department says has, quote, crushed the freedoms of Hong Kong residents. A man known as the lottery lawyer has been arrested. Jason Curland is accused of working with a mob associate and others to steal millions of dollars from lottery winners who had hired him to invest their money and protect them from scam artists. Curland and three co-defendants pled not guilty at their arraignments. And bioluminescent plankton are lighting up the beaches in California. Take a look at those waves. The Monterey Bay Aquarium captured the glowing waves on the coast. It happens when plankton become concentrated in large groups. And I have actually seen that firsthand when I was living out in California. It is a beautiful sight. That's super cool. Little, little eerie sometimes. Anyway, you're up to date, Kel. Back to you. A lot eerie, Sue. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Coming up, what Target CEO just said that sets that company apart from Walmart. The State Department wants revenues, uh, wants universities, I'm sorry, to divest from China. Netflix is testing a shuffle button and the fanny pack is back. That's all ahead in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Leslie Picker, and Frank Holland. Welcome to everybody. And first up, we got to talk Target today. What a story. The retailer reported second quarter earnings and basically crushed every possible estimate. They had a record 24% growth in same-store sales. The share price reaction is even more interesting because we saw Home Depot report 25% sales growth yesterday. Shares were unmoved. Target shares are up 12.5% on Squawk Box this morning. The CEO, Brian Cornell, attributed their blowout quarter not so much to the stimulus checks like competitor Walmart did, but to the COVID lockdowns themselves. Take a listen. 
Oh, I'll tell you myself uh, exactly what he said, Frank Holland. And he said it was specifically spending on vacations that weren't happening uh, that had people spending in Target instead. Well, you know, Kelly, stimulus checks are a factor. I think we everybody can just admit that. You put cash in people's home and hands who own homes, you're going to spend it on their home, at least in part. Uh, today, Lowe's also had a blowout quarter, 34% growth in their same-store sales. I spoke to their CEO. He said something similar. Stimulus checks are a factor, but there's other macro factors that influence things, like aging housing stock and low interest rates in Lowe's case. And I, I just have to agree with the Target CEO. There's a lot of reasons why people are spending more on their homes. One of them is stimulus checks. Another is, what else can you spend on? It's hard to leave your house safely these days. Yeah, and Leslie, I mean, there's, there's kind of a problem with this as well. Target was allowed to be open right. during a lot of the shutdowns because they sell essentials. Well, guess what? They didn't rope off the parts of the stores that sold non-essentials. And meanwhile, all mm -hmm. the small mom-and-pop stores across much of the country were forced to be closed. Right. They said they took about $5 billion worth of share from their competitors, both uh, mom-and-pop stores and, like, Target competitors, you know, big box uh, retail stores. And you're right. There were winners and losers during the second quarter. Those businesses that were essential that were able to stay open. We've seen four of them this week that posted blockbuster earnings. Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, Target, all clearly benefiting from being able to stay open. Their e-commerce business did well. There, there's no question that people yeah. are continuing to shop there even online. But uh, I think being open and being deemed essential was certainly a beneficiary. They were beneficiaries of that. Yeah, I mean, $5 billion, Robert, is a big number. The other thing that you wonder about is, you know, is that going to be sustainable? So maybe taking market share is uh, somewhat sustainable if competitors go out of business. But if it's because once people start taking vacations again, you're clearly not getting the same discretionary spend. Yeah, and they also need more stimulus. You know, there's a reason the CEO was telling Becky Quick this morning on Squawk Box that they need more stimulus from the government. But clearly, look, the, the physical stores got help from the government in terms of the checks and in terms of being deemed essential. But here's the number that struck me. Five million, that was the number of new digital customers they had in the quarter. Ten million new digital for the year. There was a reason today that Amazon was down in the morning. I think the online piece here, which was the majority of the percentage point growth for Target, was the story, is the story, and will be the story going forward. I mean, those are just huge numbers in a quarter when they were already doing well digitally. Yeah, it's like maybe Amazon isn't a monopoly after all. And then I see the share price at 3300 <laughs> You're like, well, it's still pretty big. All right, let's move along and talk about some news on the Netflix front. The company is testing a shuffle button. The feature is supposed to make it easier and faster for people to choose something to watch. It would queue up content tailored to your individual taste. And Netflix hopes to make it a permanent feature. Anyone here think this is a bad idea? Yeah, terrible idea. Two what? words for it. Womp, womp. It's another bad one. Autoplay is a bad idea. Um, other things they've tried are a bad idea. There's already a Because You Watch feature on there that curates, quote unquote, things that you like or don't like. It's unnecessary. It's really a solution without a problem. Okay. Anyone else? I just find it funny that Netflix is trying to get us to watch more Netflix during this time. I feel like I've never watched <laughs> as much uh, online television uh, as I have during this pandemic when everyone is at home. I have a theory, and I joke about this with my husband, that the pandemic actually waited until we had Peacock, Apple TV Plus, or Apple Plus, uh, Disney Plus, all of these different options in order to watch. So I guess Netflix is just trying to make sure that we, we stick with them. Yeah. Uh, when we're done with our show. Robert, I'm not a huge Netflix would, user, but to me, it would seem like a no-brainer move. Like, my experience in the past would suggest 
Yeah, it's annoying to try to like type in and use the search and all. Maybe voice is better, but that they need some some better options. Yeah, look, curating is the tough thing. There's so much to watch right now. It is so hard to figure out what you should watch. And I would worry that if they had a shuffle button, they would put things they want to promote in the hmm. shuffle as opposed to things that would fit my views. But, but clearly, I don't watch much streaming because when I turn it on, it's overwhelming. I don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. It's such a commitment as opposed to Spotify, which is just a three-minute song. He's like, do I want to start this whole series? It's daunting. <laughs> so you commit to the music instead of the streaming. Frank, what's your strategy? If you've got this clearly figured out, to enlighten everybody else. Uh, I watch the things I want to watch, and I don't watch the things I don't want to watch. <laughs> the end. And then I keep on going with my day. Then I How come do you to know? Work, then I come home. <laughs> I think that Frank Holland needs like his own subscription service to say what to watch next uh, on streaming. All right, next up, another hit to Chinese stocks these days. The State Department is now asking U.S. colleges and universities to divest Chinese <laughs> holdings from their endowments. They issued a letter warning schools to preemptively shed these investments to avoid potentially more strict measures how much are we talking? Well, in 2019, foreign equities in total were about 14 percent of big endowments, those worth more than a billion dollars. Robert, what would be the practical significance of this? This is huge. I mean, look, we've already seen the beginnings of the splinter net where we have the Chinese Internet and the Western or U.S. Internet. I think we could see dual exchanges here where you have sort of two capital systems in the world, the Chinese capital system and the U.S. and Western capital system. And this is, this is a really interesting and perhaps dangerous sign where the government is telling universities, do not invest in Chinese companies even if they're listed in the U.S. Now, it's tricky because they have a fiduciary duty to probably pull out of these stocks because they've been warned. On the other hand, they also probably want to participate in companies like Alibaba that are strong growth companies and that might be good investments. So it's, it's a really rock and a hard place for these universities. Uh, and it is yet another case of where politics is getting involved in capital markets. Leslie? Well, I would just say that I think they're kind of overlooking the second derivative effect, which is that endowments also invest in hedge funds. Hedge funds tend to also invest in forward equities and particularly mm. uh, Chinese equities. And hedge funds don't always tell their LPs, being endowments, what they're invested in. Uh, so I think that does put an endowments in, in a really tricky place on that front because it's unlikely that they're going to get the hedge funds to tell them exactly what they're invested in at all times. But yeah. then does that put them in a kind of tricky place from a regulatory standpoint? And how do, where does that stand with regard to their no, fiduciary that, duty? That's a great point. And for anybody in this country who's going to face scrutiny over Chinese holdings, it means who they're invested with is going to have to come up with like ex-China offerings right. so that everybody can comply. Robert, I just want to come back to what you're saying about politics and the meddling here. There's an incredible article in the Wall Street Journal today that details what's happening on college campuses where they are using code names for students uh, in Chinese courses because the Chinese students are afraid of basically kind of, um, what would I say, consequences of what they say in class from the Chinese government if it doesn't kind of comply with what the Chinese government wants, especially on issues like Hong Kong and so forth. Now, you might say this sounds crazy, but it's not. We're talking about places like Princeton, and because they're doing online learning, they're basically afraid that that online classroom is going to be hacked and eavesdropped and used against them. And to me, it suggests, look, the politicization of this issue on college campuses, I mean, that's a much bigger issue, I would think, than divesting from Chinese stocks. It, it is a huge issue. When you look at the cultural battle that's happening right now, 
the cultural battleground is happening in universities. It started two years ago when the administration made it more difficult for students, Chinese students, to come to the U.S. This is a huge source of revenue for the universities and colleges that have grown dependent on this money <clears throat> from Chinese students. And you have the difficulty now of not just the sort of a hostile environment for many of these students in class and on universities, but also allegations by the government that they're stealing research in the labs right. and also difficulty in finding a job after university. So, so this, the universities are the battleground where this culture war is starting and yeah. playing out. And it's, not, it's just starting. No, you're absolutely right on that front. Well, sticking with higher education, uh, colleges and universities are seeing way fewer students in general this year, no matter what form their education is taking. Harvard announced that 20% of its first-year class has deferred enrollment. Uh, meanwhile, Axios poll show today shows that across all four years of college, 22% of students are planning, Frank, not to enroll this fall. And look at what's happening at Notre Dame. Even the ones who showed up might now be sent back. Is it too late for them to defer? I mean, this is a, it, it's such a headache. I feel, I, what do you do? I mean, it's certainly a headache. Um, number one, it's, it's not a crisis, though. You're, people are still able to learn online. It's not ideal. Personally, I really enjoyed my college experience. It was great to be in the dorms. It was great to take part in college activities and do things like that. But it's truly not essential for an education. Now, we're, we're kind of highlighting Harvard because 20% of their students aren't going to be there. I looked at some stats on the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education's website. 27% of schools are online only. 24% are to be determined. So it's not that crazy for 20% of Harvard students not to be uh, enrolling this fall. Great ACT scores are not a vaccine for COVID-19. It's going to happen at many, many schools. Well, it's interesting because there's not a lot of other great options if you're deferring either. I was speaking with someone recently who was saying their kid was looking at like the nine countries that will still take Americans. But if you have mm. a passport issue, like even it just needs to be renewed, forget about it. Students are looking at going to places like California where people might need tutors for their kids because they're pulling them out of the public schools, Robert. I mean, they're... There is a huge interest in doing something different this fall. Yeah, and also interesting, so they're deferring, which means they're going to enroll as freshmen next year, which means there's going to be a lot fewer slots, not just at Harvard, at all these universities, for the graduating high school seniors of 2021. So all these cascading effects that, that will crowd out this, this I, I, do th I don't think it's a tragedy, as Frank mentioned, but I do think there are all these secondary effects that make it really tough for high school and college <clears throat> students right now. Yeah, and I mean, Frank, I totally take your point about, you know, the learning aspect of it, but most kids just want to get out of the house. They want to get out of <laughs> mom and dad's house. They want to go to college. You know, they want that experience. Um, but I guess in Harvard's case, they're just going to wait a year, most of them. Finally, guys, before we go, we have to mention this important fashion story everybody needs to know about. Um, the COVID-era closet is full of Lululemon, Crocs, and yes, fanny packs, because people are abandoning their purses for the hip huggers. Uh, it's a dress-down, convenient accessory that can carry your hand sanitizer, mask, phone, uh, etc. Today's fanny packs, they're a little more chic than you might remember, Leslie. But, but we've all had this experience. There's so much more to carry now. And, and you need your hands to deal with opening doors and putting masks on, whatever. I mean, there's the North Face offering at 35 bucks. I might order one right now. That's that's a really good deal. And I will say this. I mean, you we're kind of living in an era when where when you go to the grocery store, you go to the drugstore, and you're carrying this big bag with all your stuff, and you accidentally bump into someone. I mean, can you imagine the amount of purell and alcohol you need to put on your purse in order to make sure that it's okay with a fanny pack you don't have to worry about that i am 
one person in the camp that is excited that these things are coming back and sell. I think they're great. The thing, Robert, is we've been hearing about the return of the fanny pack for years. So like much like many trends, it's like, oh, we, we keep hearing about it. We keep hearing about it. Oh, and now because of COVID, it's finally like it's arrived. <laughs> Yeah, but but in 2017 sales tripled. 20 the next year they doubled. So this was even happening pre-COVID. I don't understand it. I mean, I, I guess it's the yoga pants thing because when you're wearing yoga pants, uh, you don't have pockets anymore, so you need something, and you don't want to carry a handbag. Uh, <laughs> but now more than ever, you have a lot of stuff to carry. I just don't understand why people are rejecting handbags because they do still have a lot of stuff to carry, maybe even more. You got the sanitizer, you got the gloves, you got the mask. Yeah. Why is a fanny pack cooler than a handbag? I don't get that. We'll give Frank Holland the final word on this. Uh, you know what, Robert's being modest. He's been wearing a Merce for months now, and I'm always a fan of his, so I'm not gonna fight it. I know, I really thought Robert Frank was gonna be at the vanguard of this and already have like a Louis Vuitton one or something. Uh, I'm, no, gonna, I'm no. gonna show you guys my picture when I get that, uh, that North Face one. I appreciate everyone joining us today. Thank you all. Robert Frank, Leslie Picker, and Frank Holland for Rapid Fire. Well, a surge in online learning combined with a continued decline in people pursuing higher education has left campus dorms empty, and that has big implications for the housing and the muni bond markets. We'll dig into that next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. You can carry it in your fanny pack. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange with more universities shifting to online classes only. Demand for student housing is falling, and that is leading to a growing number of housing defaults. Seema Modi is here with more for us. Seema? Kelly, typically in mid-August, students are starting to move into their dorms and make last-minute trips to Ikea to outfit their rooms. But with nearly half of U.S. universities expected to pivot to online Learning uh, student housing projects could face a decline in occupancy. Green Street Advisor says UNC Chapel Hill's decision to go virtual suggests the risk of lease cancellations, no-shows, and refund requests for off-campus apartments is growing. And with fewer students coming to the campus, student housing projects could have a tough time servicing municipal debt that they have taken out to fund those projects. We've already seen a number of defaults in properties near Oklahoma University, College of New Rochelle in Westchester, and Howard University in D.C. The student housing, student housing REIT, American Campus, currently on track for its worst year since 2004, currently down over 30 percent. And it's worth noting, higher education and is one of the sectors credit rating agency S&P has assigned the highest number of negative outlooks uh, second only to transportation. So, Kelly, investors are certainly taking notice of this trend. Yeah, you know, you've been all over this with the American, uh, with the ACC, REIT, SEMA, and now a raft of defaults. We appreciate it. We'll talk more about this now. I'm joined by Randy Girardi. He is director and head of municipal strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Randy, it's good to have you. Where, how do the dominoes continue to fall here? What do investors need to know and watch for? Sure. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So, we were already cautious, as was mentioned earlier, with the higher ed space coming into uh, 2020. Uh, we certainly think the movement to online uh, activities and moving to online learning, the hybrid model, certainly has negative ramifications for student housing, as mentioned. We think there are three things people need to focus on. Location, location, location. Uh, where these facilities are located, being on campus versus off campus, uh, having uh, new amenities would be the second thing to focus on and the ability to uh, reach student uh, interest in changing preferences 
especially, uh, you know, not sharing uh, dorms, for example, uh, showering that has a bit more privacy, et cetera, in this new age of COVID-19. Sure. So what I'm curious, I'm going to ask you about this from the college point of view, even though you're the investing guy, but what happens once colleges default on these payments? I mean, presumably they want students to come back and fill those properties in the future. Sure. So one thing about municipal finance, uh, you know, usually, uh, you know, you see a, 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 a ability to continue to move forward as an institution. Uh, so while these projects may have uh, have challenges, we think that the universities will largely uh, remain intact. And so I think uh, if they can, you know, develop a situation where they downsize their inventories, uh, they can make their uh, their portfolio of real estate a bit more palatable to their students' uh, structure. Uh, we think that, you know, there is an opportunity for investors to, uh, you know, continue to invest in the sector, and recoveries, uh, you know, may be able to be gained if we can just get through this COVID-19 patch uh, and get to a more uh, adjusted uh, learning structure where you have a hybrid and a traditional model together. With. Right, because I guess the question comes down to, as an investor, do you think colleges are going back to normal before COVID, or do you think this will represent some kind of permanent shift, not just because of the pandemic, but because of all the trends and forces that were building up against the proliferation of all these colleges and universities prior to this? What's your guess about how that shakes out? Sure. I mean, I think I think we, you know, small liberal arts universities that are, uh, you know, in a highly competitive market with students that were already the demographics were moving against colleges and universities, just the number of student age, uh, you know, cohorts uh, coming through the system. So, I mean, we think that there are certainly uh, you know, chances that you are going to have uh, private universities in particular shutting down. But even beyond that, you know, you look at the state and local picture, uh, these large state universities, uh, they also you look to states for uh, aid. And we think, you know, given the, uh, the challenges at the state and local government level, we think uh, student aid is going to also be pressured. So they're really feeling it on both ends uh, in terms of, uh, of, the, of the push on the business model. And that was happening before COVID-19. We think that just, this just accelerates the, uh, that trend. And, and there will be winners and losers for sure. Um, you know, we think that there needs to be an adjustment uh, to, to the overall um, you know, yeah. the market. So we have talked a lot about the losers of candidates we're starting to see already. Give me a name or two or a, a way to invest that, you know, on, on who might be a winner here. Sure. I mean, we think that the up quality trade makes sense here. Uh, the universities that have strong endowments, uh, the universities that have, uh, you know, whether it's you know an Ivy League or a top tier uh, state school, that's certainly going to continue to have value. Where we're most concerned is, uh, you know, small, small liberal arts universities that have engaged in some speculative products for growth that they thought would happen, and that's certainly curtailed. So we, th we think higher education still offers a decent value proposition, but again, we think the market needs to be right-sized, and we don't think that uh, investors are fully being compensated for this risk in the municipal market, given the strong technical environment that we're currently seeing in our marketplace. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into your other specialty and experience in stadium finance. Maybe we can do that another time. But, Randy, it's been good to have you. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Look forward to catching up another time again. Randy Girardi is from Wells Fargo. Sticking with education, at a time when tech is critical to schools as they shift to online learning, the trade war is having some unintended consequences for students. Elon Moy is here with more on that. Elon. Well, Kelly, this story takes you all away from the Muslim Uyghurs in the far west region of China to students here in America who are dealing with
distance learning. It all started over the summer when Chinese company Bitland got blacklisted over human rights violations related to the Uyghurs. Now, Bitland is a supplier to Lenovo. It makes parts for its popular Chromebook laptops. And so these sanctions ended up colliding with a crush of orders from school districts who were trying to gear up for virtual learning. Now these districts are telling us that their orders are getting seized during shipment and it could take weeks or even months for them to be replaced. One district in Missouri told us it had 645 laptops that were seized. In Indianapolis, another district says it's waiting on 3,700 laptops. And in Denver, as many as 12,500 laptops could get hit. Now, Kelly, we did reach out to Lenovo for comment. They did not respond. But the schools tell us the company is working with a new supplier and hoping to get them laptops soon. I Back mean, you've you. probably experienced this as well, Elon, the, the scramble for any kind of laptop or computer. these, And now there's people who are learning just now their kids might need more laptops. That's exactly right. You know, there are 7 million students who do not have a device at home to use for virtual learning. So the real concern here is equity. You know, how many kids are not going to be able to complete the schoolwork that they need to do because they simply don't have the technology available to them. That's creating a huge backlog, both on the parents' end and on the school district's end, to ensure that there is that one-to-one -one ratio for devices. Yeah, yeah. I have had a laptop sitting around for five years. I'm not really using it. I'm I wonder if I'm not the only one. Time to go wipe it clean, you know, get it into the right hand somewhere. Elon, thanks very much. Elon Moy, fascinating details there. Well, today's Crowded King is a household name and the fourth best S&P performer since March. We will reveal that stock next. Quick programming note before we go, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow will be on Closing Bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern time. You won't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Exchange. Time for our reveal of our crowded king today. It's Whirlpool, and the stats will surprise you. This is the fourth best performer in the S&P since the March lows. Uh, the line behind me, blue line, is its current stock price. Purple line is the 50-day moving average, and even more so uh, than Toll Brothers yesterday, this name is 24% above its 50-day moving average, so pretty extended move. Its RSI, relative strength index, is 83. The higher it is above 50, uh, the higher that gauge in terms as far as traders are watching it. Remember, yesterday with Toll Brothers, we were more in the mid-70s. So again, a big outsized move for Whirlpool off the lows, and the average analyst estimate is still 10% below its current price. This stock is up 20 4% this year, up 187% from its 52-week lows. Oh, and by the way, you get a 2.6% dividend yield. Not bad. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.